Hope you are well. I'm here with my good buddy and new fellow YouTuber, Joseph Wang. <laughs> Joseph, welcome to the show, buddy. Tell us about your new YouTube channel. Hey, George. It's great to be here. So, yeah, I just started a new YouTube channel. It's called Joseph Wang, and I plan on posting some of my, my thoughts on um, what's happening in the markets and with the Fed on there. So, uh, in case you guys are interested in, in market commentary and what's happening with the Fed, check it out. I only have one video since I just heard of this yesterday. It's my thoughts on what happened with the Fed meeting yesterday. And, and actually, Joseph, I don't know if you know this, but I don't think the YouTube algorithm has picked up your channel yet. Oh. So even if you put in Joseph Wang into YouTube, you don't come up, believe it or not. Well, you do, other videos of yours come up, yeah. but not your actual channel. So Josh, do me a favor when we're talking and grab the URL, the specific URL, and copy and paste it into the uh, chat. And then when we get done, pay, copy and paste that into the, the description and uh, the pinned comment so people can just click the link and then go ahead and subscribe. Okay, so nice. Joseph, I know the video you did yesterday was on the FOMC decision. So walk us through your thoughts there. We've got a 25 basis point hike which I think was in line with market expectations, but you said the rhetoric from Powell was, was dovish. Yeah, yeah. If you look at what's happening in the markets today and yesterday, it, it seems like the market took it as very dovish. So yesterday after the FOMC, well, actually, as Powell was talking, the more he was talking, the, the higher the, the stock market went, right? Mm. The dollar was selling off and bond yields were, were moving lower. So that's all consistent with a very dovish interpretation. Now, as you noted, George, the Fed hiked rates 25 basis points, and they suggested that they were going to continue to hike the next meeting and maybe after that. But the reason that it was really dovish was that Powell didn't push back against all the implied rate cuts by the market. Mm. So if you look at market pricing, the market thinks that the Fed is going to hike one more time, and then later in the year, it's going to cut rates and pretty aggressively to cut it by uh, 50 basis points to so 0.5%. Now, Paul, and so when the market thinks that the Fed is going to cut rates, then the market is thinking that, you know, we're, we're near the end of the cycle. Money is going to get easy again. And so you can see that mortgage rates have been coming down. The stock market has been rallying and so forth. So these are all things that, you know, are, are consistent with a loosening of financial conditions which is how the Fed influences real economic activity, right? So if you think back a year or two ago, Fed was keeping rates low, mortgage rates are around 3%, you know, you had a huge boom in, in real estate and the stock market and then stocks and so forth. And now Paul had, Paul had the chance today, as yesterday when he was asked about it, to push back against this narrative the market was pushing. In the past few meetings, he pushed back really aggressively. He would try to talk the market down but Powell didn't do that this time. In fact, he suggested things that are pretty, pretty dovish. So when asked why the market pricing is so different from what the Fed is thinking, which is to keep rates higher for longer, Paul was saying that, you know, maybe the market thinks that inflation is going to come down uh, rapidly. And if inflation does come down rapidly, then it might not be unreasonable to think that rates would also come down. So he was open to adjusting his expectations for interest rate hikes in line with inflation data. And, you know, by not talking the market down, he kind of, I think the market just kind of took it and, and ran with it. So you can right. see this tremendous rally here. Now, the problem is that 
the Fed's actions and inactions directly impact future economic data. So by not pushing back against the market's interpretation, he's in a sense loosening financial conditions, which makes it possible for uh, inflation to come back later on in the year. So you can think about a situation where, let's say, yields continue to decline, market rates continue to decline. You can see reacceleration in, in the housing sector, for example. And Redfin CEO has a Twitter thread just uh, just a few days ago suggesting that he's seeing activity pick up again. So it seems to be happening. So we could be in a in a in a scenario yeah, later. And, and in the to year. your earlier point, the the ten year, Josh just told me is down at like three point three. Yeah, yeah. Prior to the Fed meeting, I think three point five. So most likely that will bring mortgage rates down, and you know which could increase uh, at least give a tailwind to home to nominal home prices. Exactly. Exactly. So. In and a sense, just, just to clear, just to clear it up for the the audience, so that means more aggregate purchasing power, more aggregate demand, which would lead you to believe that we could see some more inflationary pressures due to that increase in aggregate demand from asset prices going up because of his dovish stance, and then the ten year going down. Exactly. I mean, think about think about the uh, mem stocks or the crypto uh, the crypto assets. So mm -hmm. you know, when the Fed was easing policy. Those assets went to the moon, and a lot of people had some extra wealth that they can use to buy stuff. You know, sales for fancy cars and fancy watches was off the charts. And if you look at what's happening today, you see AMC up significantly, crypto assets, you know, up as well. Yeah, um, they could be. We could be right back where we started um, if uh, if he doesn't do anything to to push back against this. So, how do you reconcile that with? The fact that that month over month, I've been looking at that more intently than I've been looking at year over year, because if you just look at year over year, we're at 6.5. But if you look at month over month, going back to the middle of 2022, it just completely collapsed. We went from, I believe, 1.3% in June, in June, in June, down to 0% in July. And then later, you know, the next couple of months, it got up to about four, but then it came back down to close to zero in November. And then December, it was a negative 0.1. So if you just took the last six months, and if you move that forward and assume the next six months will look the same, then, you know, we're at like 2.5% year over year. So what I always try to ask myself is if I think that's going to increase, what's going to be the catalyst? Like, what, how, how are we going? If we just keep doing what we're doing now, most likely we're going to be at 2.5% in July of 2023. But you're saying that the catalyst could be asset prices going up because of this dovish position or maybe even the Fed pausing. And, that, and therefore, that's what takes us to this next wave of CPI increases. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, we could think about this from something more concrete, like mortgage rates. So a few months ago, mortgage rates were above 7%. You saw housing completely slow down. And so if you look at the numbers back then, yeah, you know, prices declining, sales slowing. But since then, mortgage rates have been declining because the Fed policy has essentially been, been more dovish. So as mortgage rates gradually declined to around 6%, you also see activity gradually pick up again. So the past declines in CPI, you can think of, I think of as just that really hawkish policy, 
but for the past few months, monetary policy has been easing. And you can see that in something concrete like the mortgage rates or the S&P 500. How do you reconcile that with M2 and M1 going down? That, that's another thing that yeah. I, I thought was really fascinating when, when I actually looked at the two charts. What I did, by the way, Joseph, is I compared 1981 to 2022. And in 1981, just to refresh your memory, that's when interest rates peaked out in the middle of the year when Volcker took it up to about 19%. And then from about July or August of 81, it was basically that was his pivot. Hmm. And uh, that was right about the time that month over month really came down significantly, like we saw in the middle of last year. But during that entire time when Volcker, quote unquote, broke the back of inflation, M2 was going up like to a significant degree. In fact, I think if my memory serves me right, during the year of 1981, M2 increased by like 10% while at the same time he quote unquote broke the back of inflation. So now I see Powell increasing rates at the fastest pace we've ever seen. And then I combine that with the fact that CPI did go down, but it went down six months ago when you look at month over month and Powell pivoted right about the time when that month over month decline occurred. But then you combine that with M2 now going down significantly, pretty much since Powell started raising rates. And then you, you, you take that information and say, okay, well, that should be CPI negative, or at least provide a headwind to CPI. And then you think about Paul Volcker crushing the back of inflation while doing an earlier pivot while at the same time, M2 is increasing by 10%. I mean, I know that some people might have a hard time following that, but I know you're following the, the, the variables that I'm referring to. So how do you reconcile all of those variables and the difference between 81 and 22? And would you still have an argument as to uh, the, the, the Fed not pivoting or the, the Fed uh, maybe not pivoting too soon, I guess, if that's the best way to say it? So I think you bring up a really good point about M2 basically not growing anymore. So if you look at a chart of M2, you know, it's, it's supposed to grow. And, and but so what's happening right now that it's, you know, maybe even slightly shrinking is, is really anomalous. But one thing to keep in mind, though, is that M2. Yeah, there you go. Great shot, Josh. And, and uh, M1's doing the same, too. Oh, OK. So the thing about this is that it's largely a reflection of Fed policy. So. George, as you've noted before, when banks create money, right? So when they create money, M2 goes higher. But banks are not the only people that can create M2. The central bank can as well. When the Fed does quantitative easing, it's also creating lots of M2. If it's buying from the non-bank entity. Uh, which it, which basically almost always is. Um, so that That's crucial, right? I don't want to cut off your train of thought, but that is crucial because so many experts out there that I've actually heard um, see it the opposite way. But obviously you would know because you were the guy that was actually buying yeah. from the primary dealers. You, the, you were the guy that was doing QE and doing QT. So if anyone knows you know, where those treasuries are coming from via the primary dealers, it, it's going to be Joseph Wang. So, and, that, and that's <laughs> important too, because if they're not buying from a non-bank entity, then it does not impact M2. So that, that's a, a real uh, sticking point where that, that we should be cognizant of. So, yeah, it's, if you're not on the uh, Fed's trading desk, it's, it's you have a little bit less understanding of this, but you can also see it in public data as well. So every week, 
the Fed publishes weak data that's showing how many treasuries and agency MBS that banks hold. And now mm. they, they haven't been increasing. Okay. So, so that's, that's some really important data point. So like, like we were talking about, when QE happens, the Fed can also increase M2. But the corollary to that is when QT happens, the Fed is decreasing M2. And we've been having QT uh, for almost a year now. So, so keep that in mind. So actually, we'll talk about something I think that would be very helpful for this. Yeah. So on the one hand, you have QT shrinking M2. And the other way that M2 can increase is bank credit creation, right, George? Would you... And the funny thing is that bank credit creation, which I think has, has a more better indicator of, of, of money, since you know when, when banks are creating credit, they're creating money and giving it to people who are going to spend that money. Bank credit creation has been enormous. It's right. like there's been this huge boom. So I have a piece that I wrote. It's called Credit Boom. And it has some, if you could pull it up, I have some charts, charts there. So it's on my website, fitguy.com. Can you pull that up, buddy? Yeah, fitguy.com. It's the second post. It's called Credit Boom. Yeah, because it's funny you talk about it. I'm really glad you're talking about this because Josh and I were trying to figure this out the other day. We looked at the decline, the total decline in M2. Yeah. And we're like, okay, what would the inputs be? And then yeah. we looked at QT and we looked at uh, bank credit. And then we looked at uh, what was a couple others. I, I can't remember what they were, but I, I couldn't reconcile. I was like 400 billion off. I'm like, where where is this 400 billion decline coming from? Okay, can you go down a little bit? Okay, so uh, up, up. yeah, there we go. So bank credit creation. So uh, I want to be more refined here. Bank credit creation can be creating money to to for real economy loans and leases. Mm-hmm. Or it can be creating money where they're actually going and buying securities. Which would not um, impact M2. Uh, which would also impact M2, but okay. has less real economic value because you're basically, let's say, creating money to, to buy a treasury. So, you know, fewer treasuries, more, more M2. So banks um, overall have been um, buying less treasuries and you know, agency MBS, but they've been creating enormous amounts of loans to the real economy. And mm-hmm. when you look at M2... I think M2 money supply is more relevant uh, when when it when it's when it comes to who gets the money. Right. So when you're creating commercial banks, when, when you're making loans and giving it to real economy people to 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 buy more to buy houses or to um, invest in a business, that's has a lot more real economy impact. So this chart here, the blue line shows that the year-to-date commercial bank loans and leases created by the commercial banking sector. And it compares it to the year-to-date um, loans and leases made by banks over the recent years. So right. you can see, usually in the past few years, the commercial banks make um, about, you know, let's say $400 billion in loans and leases. So just to be clear, this is um, net of, of renewals. So it's a total increase in total volumes. Okay. Last year, gangbusters, right? So you can see that it's $1.2 trillion. And... trillion in loans and leases made. So that suggests to me that, you know, a lot of people were borrowing money and a lot of people have a lot more money, which they borrowed and they have to pay back one day. Um, So that's a lot of spending power. And, you know, if you go down to the second chart a little bit lower, I I break it down further by the types of loans that are getting. Now, no surprise there, there's residential real estate, right? So mortgage rates were very low. We had a huge boom in, uh, in, in single family homes and multifamily. But it's not just that. It's basically 
everything. So you got, you know, commercial real estate, you know, people, I, I imagine a lot of that is multifamily. And as we know, there's a big boom in multifamily construction and commercial uh, CNI and, you know, um, just consumer loans like credit cards and so forth as well. So that suggests to me, along with the very strong employment data that, you know, we, we have kind of a boom happening, at least we did last year, where people were borrowing a lot of money, people's wages were going higher, and eventually they're going to spend that money as well. And no surprise, economic growth comes out reasonably strong in quarter four. I think many people were thinking we'd have a recession, but, you know, growth was fine. And yeah, but the most- question is, Joseph, how the hell are we getting a decline of whatever it is, $900 billion in M2, when, to your point, bank credit has grown by $1.2 trillion? The, the, the Fed hasn't yeah. done that much QT. Exactly. So uh, there's this, the overall, okay, actually, let me find this. Josh, you want to go back to that chart for us? So as I mentioned earlier, um, so. Or is there another chart yeah. within this report you want to? Let me actually actually pull it out here. So bank credit creation. So, okay. So bank credit creation stalled for a little bit in 2022 uh, because although the banks were making more commercial loans, they were making few, they were purchasing fewer securities. And here, let me send this, this link here. Or can you just do a screen share, Joseph? Or maybe Uh, I don't know if we can do that. Yeah, I don't know. Can you do that? I'll just, I'll just send this link here. Okay. So what I'm showing here is that the, okay, can you zoom in a little bit? Let's say one year or five years, whatever is. Yeah, so this is bank credit creation. So so as a principal, M2 is affected by, you know, central bank policy, so QE, QT, but right. also bank credit creation as banks right. can create M2. And if you go to, let's say one year, that's probably zooming in a bit more. Okay, so... What you see here is that, so we have QT in the background, shrinking M2, mm-hmm. and we have banks who the past year um, were making fewer, buying fewer securities, but making more loans to the real economy. And it net on that, it balanced out. So that credit creation was flat. So you had net decline in M2. But recently we see credit creation picking up a little bit again. So that's kind of how things are, are pushing. And I think, I think, when you look at M2, it's much more useful to look at M2 when it's making loans and leases to the real economy, because that's money that's actually going to be spent. You don't borrow money unless you're actually going to spend it. Um, so that that's, I think, very different from, let's say, going out and the bank going out and buying a treasury security. Yeah, it's higher velocity money. Oh, exactly. Higher velocity money. Exactly. But, but still, how do we get the, the net decline in M2, even if we have bank credit flatlining? We've it, we didn't do enough QT to explain the the nine hundred billion dollar decrease in overall M two, which to my understanding is pretty much unprecedented. Uh, are you, that type of decline? What's in, the in time M2. period you're looking at? Uh, I think it was Josh. Can you pull up that chart of M two? It's basically well, I've got it up on my board. It would be from April of 2022, Joseph. To uh-huh. uh, let's see, so. Just max it out there, Josh. It looked January 2022. What what's the number there? Or I guess uh, yeah, right about there. So we're at 21 trillion seven hundred and thirty-nine billion. So now to go down to where we are today. So we've got a decline just of call it five hundred ah, billion. Okay. Five hundred billion. So I, I I don't know why I was thinking nine hundred, but about five hundred billion 
of a decline. And then, but we've got a 1.2 trillion increase on the bank credit. So there to get a $500 billion decline, we'd need, you know, a decrease somewhere of 1.7 trillion. Okay. Let's do some detective work. Okay. So when money flows, so M2 is basically deposits at a bank, right? So when money flows out of a bank, um, so it can go to, it can, so it can also go to other places that would not show up in M2. For example, right. it can go to a money market fund, which then goes into the RP or See, that, it can that go was my to, next question. It can go to the TGA account or, and this is something that's a bit more in, in the weeds, but not that, um, they can also go to the foreign repo pool. So the foreign repo pool is a checking account at the fed like the TGA, but instead of for the federal government, it's for foreign central banks. So when I look also, at- Just one quick note, what, what if yeah. a US citizen buys an asset from a foreign citizen? Would that decrease M2 as well? No. Um, so, because let's say I have $100 and I buy, use that to buy $100 from someone in Japan. Well, then someone in Japan has that $100 deposit in the American bank. The no, deposit, no, I'm assuming they don't have an American bank. Oh, well, how do they so, like well, the seller, the seller okay, would so, have uh, like, you know, Wells Fargo and then the buyer in Japan would not have a U.S. bank. So, uh, or um, let's see. So I understand your question. Okay. So I have a hundred dollars. I convert that to yen and give it to the Japanese guy. Right. So when I convert that to yen, I'm selling a hundred dollars for, let's say, 140 yen. Someone else gets that hundred dollars. They have to put it in a bank somewhere because it only exists in a bank. Um, so it, it just shifts deposits to someone else. Um, well, to your point, George, it's also possible that um, perhaps if I go sell my dollars for someone in the yen, they take that yen, I take the dollars that I sold them and deposit it in a in a bank abroad. So a euro yeah, dollar. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. So. That's possible as well. Then it will not show up in M2, but it would still exist as a deposit at a bank outside of the Fed's data source. Right. Because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, M2 is just domestic, right? Exactly. It's just domestic. Okay. So that's possible. Uh, if you wanted data on that, you would have to go to the Bank of International Settlements. Um, I, it's a lagged data set. So I think it's about two quarters lagged. So you wouldn't really be able to to figure out if there's a, a and the bottom line there. is probably not happening to the degree to which would explain a, a, a decrease in M2 against an increase of, of bank lending. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's probably not going to be not going to move know. the needle. I, I don't think so because when I look at the data set, it's not changing all that much, but you know, something could have happened in the past two quarters that, that I'm not aware of. Um, but, you know, maybe I'll write a post about this. It's it is an interesting detective question as to where the the M two is vanishing. Yeah, but, but you you touched on something that I was going to ask you, Joseph, and I was trying to think through this myself. When the commercial bank deposit liabilities go from average Joe into money market fund, are they still a? Is that still included in M two? And I think that it is. It because where I'm going with this is when the money market fund takes that into reverse repo because it's still technically an asset of that money market fund. Is it still calculated in M2 or, or I, is it not? 
I believe that M2 also includes retail money market fund shares. So if I take my $100 and put it in a money market fund, there's $100 fewer in bank deposits, but then there's $100 more in retail money market fund shares. Okay. And that is still okay. included in M2. So we so, can't say that that all the money in reverse repo would have impacted M2. Uh, well, if I'm an institutional investor, I take money out of a bank and then I put it into an institutional money market fund. Well, then that that's taking money out of M2. Okay, um, so the difference there was a retail money market yeah, fund. Yeah, there's a retail. Institutional. Got it. Well, another way, if let's say no one takes money out of the bank and into a money market fund, okay? But the bank, but the money market fund complex, let's say initially it was investing in uh, a CD to a to a to a big bank. Okay, a CD would be a deposit; it, it would count for M two. But it doesn't want to do the CD anymore. It does that and in, in instead invests in the reverse repo facility. Then mm. that would contract M two. Now, over the past two weeks, we see a decline in the reverse repo facility. However. Um, I think year over year, I, I don't think there's some, I think, oh, depending on your time frame, you, you won't really see much of a decline. So that's why I was asking um, what the time frame you're looking at for, for the, for the and then, decline. M2. And then TGA is another thing that would dramatically impact it. If, if they were just collecting all these taxes and weren't spending anything and the yeah. TGA was being run up, then you would assume that M2, there'd be downward pressure on M2. Exactly. So, so Let's say I pay my taxes to the federal government. I take my deposits and then I send it over to the federal government. Deposits go out of the bank and then end up in the TGA, as you suggested. Uh, you know, going forward, you know, if there's a debt ceiling issue, usually what you see is the TGA run down to close to zero and all that money goes back to the banking sector. So you could see a boost in M2, um, you know, in the coming months from that from that source. I think there's, I think there's a still... 300 billion or so in the yeah i think TGA lynn account. was talking about the debt ceiling issue okay. well, potentially even increasing liquidity from a standpoint of drawing down the tga yeah there's a 500 billion in the tga now and so um yeah so if we have a very serious debt issue you can see that 500 billion going close to zero and that would add about you know uh, so when the TJ gets paid down, some of that money can also go to the reverse repo facility as well. But I mm. think most of it will go to the banking sector. So that would boost banking sector liquidity. Right, right. Hey, guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. How much of that would impact M2 money supply? I guess it depends on what 
the the money was being spent you know i was thinking through that and as detailed as i could and i thought well if they took all 500 billion and just paid back the fed because let's say they had 500 billion of treasuries that were maturing and yeah. they were trying to do qt then that would not impact m2 but if it was the the government um you know janet yellen taking that 500 billion and literally spending it into the economy then that definitely would so it's it's just what it seems like is it gets so nuanced and so complex that there's really no way to know definitively why m2 is going down and then how do you handicap it in terms of future cpi so so i haven't done the detective work but there are only you know, so many avenues they could do. Yeah. We've already discussed all the avenues. So I'll, I'll look into that later and I'll write a post about that. But I would be hesitant about linking M2 to, to CPI. Now, that's what the Fed tried to do in the in the 80s, as you noted, targeting the quantity of money. And that yeah. was the time of Milton Friedman when everyone was talking about the quantity of money as a driver of inflation. Uh, the, the truth is uh, the Fed and you know, just didn't really know what was going on. They, they saw... They saw prices going higher, but they, they didn't really know why. And so the theory of the time was that it was a quantity of money. And so they tried to control that by limiting the quantity of money and they failed. And so they realized that wasn't really a good way of thinking about the world because it didn't work. Um, I think one of the reasons it didn't work is, as you're familiar with, you have this whole euro dollar market where um, a lot of money supply is, is just not within the Fed's purview. A second reason it did not work is that, you know, what, you know, you can be really all philosophical. You can think, what is money? Money is obviously more than M2, right? So um, if you're just looking at deposits at a bank, well, what about a savings account? I mean, things like that. So that's, I think, one of some of the ideas why it didn't work back then. Today, I think it works even less because a lot of M2 is simply a reflection of Fed's balance sheet policy. And, you know, if the Fed's balancing policy can have a big impact on, on M2, you're not really capturing, you know, private sector activity. You're really just capturing um, how the Fed wants to impact interest rates. So yeah. if the Fed wants to, let's say, push longer data interest rates lower, they'll do quantitative easing, which boosts M2. And as we've seen for the past 10 years, not just in the U.S., but in Japan and in Europe as well, you know, when you do QE and you're pumping up the M2, that doesn't necessarily lead to uh, to CPI inflation. It does lead to financial asset inflation. But, you know, I, I really think that has to do, I mean, so I think if you want to get link money supply to um, CPI inflation, you really have to look more at real economy activity rather than yeah. type of financial engineering that the Fed is doing. You know, the way I say that is you've got to look at the delta between M2 and real GDP. You can't just look at... M2 and try to figure out, okay, well, we had one unit of increase in M2. Therefore, we're going to get one unit of increase in CPI. It, yeah. it, it doesn't really work that way. I, 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 when we get done here, Joseph, remind me and I'll give you this website. It's called longtermtrends.net. And I've been just diving into it extensively for the last month or two. And it shows you M2, CPI, nominal GDP, but if you do a calculation, obviously you can get real GDP and it goes and it, and it, uh, it compounds it over any period of time you want. So you, what you can do, let's say you want to look at 30 year. Okay. Josh is pulling it up right here. 
Oh, also one other thing. Oh, nice site. Uh, so, so Josh, as an example, go from 1870 to 1900. You see, Joe, so the black line is M2. Yes. The blue line is nominal GDP. And the red line is CPI. Mm -hmm. And then, so what you can do is you can take that exact same time frame and just move it, like, you compare that to 1930 to 1960, as an example. And you can see how those time frames differed. And like right here, you can see what stands out at you is M2 was identical as far mm -hmm. as M2 money growth. And then, but instead of a 45% decline in prices, we see, a, a, was it Josh, maybe a 60, 70% increase in prices. So then you can kind of try to think through, okay, if, if the variable, if, the, if there's a, an additional variable above and beyond M2, what is it? What is it? And uh, the conclusion that I came to after, you know, going over this for hours and hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks and weeks is that it's really about, uh, or it could, it could, and you don't know that, uh, you know, this could be just a correlation, who knows, but it looks like there's a very strong correlation with the M2 money growth and real GDP. So going back to the 1800s, real GDP was 300%, hmm. right? Where if you go to that time frame of 1930 to 1960, real GDP was only 200%. And then if you go to 1990 to, 200, uh, to 2020, you had the same increase of M2, about 400%, but then you had an, uh, uh, like 125% increase in CPI. And then of course, as you would expect, you had a, a lower real GDP. So the delta between M2 and real GDP, as that increases, the amount of CPI that you got as a result of that M2 increase went up as well. And so it, it's, it's just, it's very fascinating. And I'd love for someone like you who's a lot smarter than I am to, to take that chart and pick it apart and to try to, you know, draw some conclusions based on your own framework and your own understanding of the fed and the monetary system. I think that's a, those are really good charts. And you know, what immediately comes to mind, is um, the idea that Richard Werner made, and you know, Richard spoke at the Rebel Capitalist Conference uh, a couple years ago. He he has this, he does great work on this, and one of the things that he talks about is, you know, when you have money, you can spend it on things that impact uh, real GDP, like goods and services. Like if I spend it on, um, let's say, going to a restaurant, or I could spend it on things that are uh, financial assets. Right. So when you have a lot of money how it maps into into gdp depends on what it's spent on mm. and i think one of the dif differences between what happened in the past two years is who had that money so the distribution of the money to people who are on well lower income spectrums those people are more inclined to spend it on real goods and services right, right. and so when you have that kind of distribution so an increase in m2 but spread more evenly among the population people are more inclined to spend that on real goods and services so you can have that stronger link between m2 and nominal gdp yeah, yeah. but um, the way I, the, oh go ahead joseph but if you just give it to like you know rich people then they'll just spend it on s p or fancier houses and things like that and that has less of an impact on 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 real gdp yeah the, the way i see that in my mind i i just think of this and it kind of not that this was happening exactly, but this is how I take it to an extreme to kind of get my head around it, is I just imagine 
back in 2020, if all the treasuries that were sold were purchased by a hedge fund, and then they took the, the 5 trillion or whatever, and then they spent it on stimulus checks. So in that case, M2 would not have changed, but it, but, but the M2 to your point would have gone from a very, very low velocity bucket, meaning on the balance sheet of a hedge fund yeah. to a very high velocity bucket on the balance sheet of the average Joe and Jane, that's going to go out there and buy a used truck or a car, or go to a yeah. factory or whatever it is. And I think that's maybe an easy way for people to understand that phenomenon that you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, basically, exactly. Money is shifting from people who don't spend it to people who do spend it through the US government. Yeah. Okay, so the next thing I'd like to talk about, I don't know if you've given this any thought, but uh, have you done a blog post on central bank digital currency? And, and how that would work if we had that with the Fed? So so I've thought about this a little bit. I mean, what, what would you like to talk about? It, it seems like they're going full speed ahead in, in other countries, but in the US, not so much. It's ultimately a political decision. And so far, at least, the, um, uh, the Fed doesn't seem to be fully on board yet, but that could just be one appointment away. Who knows? Yeah, what, what I've tried to, I mean, I've tried to, think about kind of all components of this. But more recently, I've tried to kind of draw a diagram as to how I think the plumbing might work. Let's just assume that they adopted a central bank digital currency. And let's just assume for a moment that the main two differences would be now all of a sudden, those bank reserves that the Fed is creating are programmable and therefore there's a slight difference between existing bank reserves and new bank reserves. And then the other difference would be that everyone that would now be in that network, the average Joe and Jane, the businesses, the corporations would have to have an account at the Fed. So those dollars would become a, a Fed liability. And then I thought, okay, well, do we live in this hybrid world where you you could have an account that is a liability of the Fed. At the same time, you have an account that's a liability of Wells Fargo. And then if that's the case, if I'm using my Fed bucks to purchase something, then that then those reserves are going from my account to the reserve account of, let's say, Bank of America or whoever I'm buying XYZ from. And then how does the, the programmable bank reserve although it initially would be matched up with that additional liability on Wells Fargo or Bank of America's balance sheet for payment, then, but those bank reserves could go somewhere else so they wouldn't follow that specific individual. So the conclusion I came to is if this is something that they want to leverage the power of programmable money, I couldn't see a way how they would do it without every single person having all of their dollars on the Fed's balance sheet to where you, you couldn't have dollars that were liabilities of a commercial bank uh, because then it, it just really wouldn't achieve the, the purpose, assuming the purpose is programmable money. And I thought, you know, the banks might even be okay with that because right now they're just so flushed with reserves. It's like they don't even need them. And like mortgages is an example. They're, they're pretty much a mortgage facilitator. It's not like they're really keeping those on their balance sheet. You know, as soon as the ink's dry, they're sending it to Fannie and Freddie 
And they're basically just taking a commission like a salesperson would. <laughs> so right, right. I could almost envision this world where the banks would just be like, yeah, I don't have to deal with customers. I mean, <laughs> I don't have to deal with all these deposits as liability on my balance sheet. Sign me up. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. But I thought, you know, maybe there's something I'm missing. So it was, it's something I wrote down that I wanted to discuss with you. So I think for, for me, when I, when I think of that with a bank, let's say people are able to have a Fed account at, at the Fed, I think of that as uh, the centralization of banking into the hands of the federal government. So yeah. just taking a step back. So when I get a loan from a bank, the bank you know, looks at my credit and decides whether to give me a loan. And then the, Fed, the bank creates that money, right? It just digitally wires it uh, into my account at the bank. It creates it out of thin air. Now, when you open up the Fed's balance sheet to the broader public, you are just one step away from letting the federal government basically create loans and give money to, uh, yeah. to projects that it thinks it's good or maybe their friends and so forth. So it's basically moving uh, the, the United States system to the system of, uh, you know, of a centrally planned communist like system. And yeah, and, and if the are... Fed's balance sheet is infinite, then yeah. uh, the, what, what I've always thought about is, well, they could move lending qualifications away from merit and towards narrative. So because exactly. the Fed doesn't have to worry about a P&L. So a commercial bank makes a loan, whether or not has a P&L, they have to make loans that are to fund projects where they think they'll get paid back if that doesn't have that problem so i mean so this is the plan of some you know some some factions in, in the united states so if you think about uh just recently uh there's this person an academic called sala amarova who was who was oh, yeah. nom um, nominated to be one of the top yep. regulators in the u.s and she had her all thesis her all papers and her theory was basically, yeah, we should just have, you know, the Fed give out loans to people, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, we, we've people have tried that model throughout throughout history. We we tried that model in in the in China in the Soviet Union, and what happens is that the government ends up making loans to basically friends and family, and uh, you get tremendous amounts of corruption. If you're part of the government, you become stupendously rich. But resources get misallocated because the government has no PL. And so you get corruption, you get inefficiency. And at the end of the day, everyone suffers from poverty and, and high inflation. And those systems, though, they all collapsed. And it's so strange that there are people in, in the United States trying to recreate that um, mm. for, for us. Now, the good news is that, um, you know, people like Saul Morovo, they were defeated. They could not pass nomination. But the bad news is, she got nominated and was seriously considered. And uh, it seems like the trend is at least so far moving towards that. Now, yeah. the Fed has taken a soft step towards that through its banking regulations. So their climate change banking regulations. So it's not that the federal government is making loans directly to, to, um, to, climate, to climate green stuff. But what they're doing is they are making steps to force banks to take that into consideration. Mm. So again, you're moving away from narrowly P&L to making uh, loans or controlling or influencing the making of loans based on narrative, as you as you noted, George. So uh, that 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 that's uh, that seems to be the trend right now. 
So didn't they hopefully, take a further yeah, step, uh, Joseph? I remember, was it Fed Now? Josh, you might remember. We, I did a whiteboard video on this a while back, but I, I know Lael Brainerd came out and announced that they'd be rolling out. Uh, it's basically the Fed's clearinghouse. Yeah, yeah. Fed Now, it's a payment system. It's, it's, yeah, and they're rolling that out in 2023. And it seemed to me like that was taking a step towards more of this centralization. So, well, right now, if you if you want to make a payment, right? So let's say I wanted to pay you, then my bank would talk to your bank. So that that ultimately goes through a, a centralized clearinghouse. It's called ACH, Automatic Clearinghouse. So, you know, it's an ACH payment. I think FedNow is, is an effort to improve upon that so that payments will be faster. So maybe it can be the speed of Venmo, so to speak. Um, so I, it, to it, me, it, does it seems seem like they're trying to replace chips. Chips is chips is a different settlement system. It's more for foreign banks. So chips okay. has some. So if you are so if you look at the members of chips, it's mostly um, foreign banks. And so it's a it's it's mostly about foreign banks sending dollar payments to each other. The benefit of chips, so chips is interbank settlement. So it, it wouldn't be like um, I wouldn't be using chips, but the benefit of chips, okay, chips is a competitor to another system. It's called Fedwire, and Fedwire is what banks use when they send payments to each other. So if I had an account at the Fed and I wanted to send money to you, George, who also had an account at the Fed, I would use Fedwire. Um, chips is a way to improve upon Fedwire. Um, because chips allows you to net your payments. So for example, if I wanted to send you, George, a billion dollars and you also owed me a billion dollars, well, we had to do growth settlement. I send you a billion and you send me a billion through, uh, through Fedwire. Right. Chips allows us to net that so we don't have to send any money. So it, it's a it's a, it's an interbank system used, mostly used by foreign banks. And to be clear, Fedwire is run by the Fed and yes. chips is run by a completely separate entity, like Swift almost. Yes, Chips is run by another uh, organization, and oddly enough, Chips also has a Fed account. Obviously, it needs to have a Fed account and use mm -hmm. Fedwire in order to settle payments for other bank bank clients. Yeah, well, it's it's great to get your thoughts on that, and I'll, I'm going to continue to try to think through how the actual plumbing would work in that uh, in that transition, just because. I, I like to geek out on that stuff, you know. <laughs> no, I, no, I think your intuition is is correct. I mean, we can all have a Fed account where we would just have the Fed settle payments directly. Maybe even use uh, some kind of real time payment system. Yeah, if we go and into just, a hybrid. And just for the listeners or the viewers, when you hear the IMF or the ECB or XYZ central bank talk about the benefits for cross border payments, basically just what they're looking at is the correspondent banking relationships that we have right now that admittedly are are inefficient and they have to go from so if you have a, a bank in zimbabwe or something like that you're going to have to go through all these different banks in order to send a thousand dollars to your your buddy in japan or something like that where if with a central bank digital currency the way they get around that is to joseph point is pretty much now everyone even foreigners uh, would have or at least the, the foreigners central bank would have that retail account with the fed so instead of having to go through all those different chains of command with the corresponding banking relationship it would just be central bank to central bank yeah. and it would make it far more it, it I, admittedly it would make it more efficient not that i prefer it but it would make it faster <laughs> sure. absolutely it would make it it would make it much faster. It would just be on one transaction on the Fed's balance sheet. Yeah. So I just wanted to explain 
why they're talking about the increased efficiency in those cross-border payments. So whenever you hear the word efficiency, just go ahead and replace that with centralized. Or exactly. Centralized. <laughs> then, I mean, and then you'll you'll get it. Uh, and they talk about all these weird benefits as well, like oh, we can bank the unbanked, right? Like uh, all yeah. these people. That's such nonsense. I mean. If you want a bank account in the U.S., everyone and go to a local branch. Branch banks everywhere. They give you a cup of coffee and give you a checking account. There's, I don't see how a Fed account would improve upon that. It's, that's what so makes strange. me not trust them. Yeah, that, that's just, one of my big red flags. Even during um, the, the pandemic and whatnot, in other areas when we were talking about mandates and all these other things, I always told my audience that the, the first red flag for me is if they are saying something that didn't make any sense whatsoever. And and that's a, a good example. You know, the, the big problem we have here are people who can't get bank accounts. It's like, really? Come on. That's complete nonsense. So easy yeah. to get a bank account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, okay. So yeah. now, finally, I want to go through this uh, chart and ask you a couple questions. I think this is another one that you're probably going to enjoy. Let's see. Where did it go? Oh, here it is. I don't know if you've seen this, but... I, I've been using this for quite some time. And I remember the first time I saw wow. it, I was just completely blown away. Are and you sure you have is, enough tabs on that browser? Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's always like that. And plus, I got my laptop right here with just as many. But um, this is a visual history of the Federal Reserve System, 2000, excuse me, 1914, hmm. 2009. And it starts with the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet. And then it gives you all this kind of history. And then it, it, I don't know if you can see the detail here, but it goes over interest rates and it goes over, I mean, certain key points in time and, and people that were involved. And the, the, the top is the asset side, bottom is the liability side. So you can see their main asset was gold. Mm -hmm. And this was 1915 to uh, 1936. And uh, the, the the pink bank reserves, the green currency in circulation. Hmm. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is right in, call it 1961 or so, we see the bank reserves as roughly 20 billion. And I'm, that, here's the 20 billion right here. And you can see the Fed's entire balance sheet back then was about, call it 55 billion. But then we see this dramatic increase um, from the currency in circulation, which correct me if I'm wrong, but this is basically uh, the banks telling the Federal Reserve, hey, we need more cash. Not that they themselves need more cash, but they need more cash because their customers, their depositors are saying, hey, I want to pull out $10,000 in green pieces of paper. And they don't have enough vault cash in aggregate total. So they're going to the Fed and saying, hey, we're going to go ahead and sell you a treasury uh, for you to literally print us the, the, the money because the printed currency units are then a liability of the Federal Reserve. And therefore, they need an asset to, mm -hmm. to offset the liability. Uh, the, so, the, the, um, it, it's a conversion, actually. So yeah, uh, it, it, it's a, it takes reserves out of the banking system and turns it into a currency. So if I go to my bank and I want $10 billion in currency in vault, and the bank doesn't have enough vault cash, what they do is they call the Fed and they give the Fed $10 billion in reserves 
and the Fed gives them $10 billion in currency, and then the bank gives me the, the currency. So on the Fed's balance sheet, it would look, the liability side would be a, a decrease in reserves, increase in currency. Right. So, but during this time frame, we see that reserves stay pretty level, mm -hmm. but the amount of currency in circulation increases substantially along with, and by the way, this blue, uh, Joseph, are treasuries. So if that's the case, then the Fed would have to add reserves into the system and the Fed yep. adds reserves by, you know, buying treasuries. So, uh, your, 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 uh, I guess your, your logic is correct. Just one more step there. Yeah. So the, the, the main thing that I was trying to, my assumption, let me back up is the increase in currency and circulation did not impact the balance sheet capacity of the commercial banking system in aggregate total because mm -hmm. it, it's just and it's not even increasing m2 because all you're doing at the end of the day is replacing a commercial bank deposit with green pieces of paper exactly so yes. it's not even on the balance sheet of the commercial banks right so when i when i take my when i go to my bank atm and take money out um i don't have a bank deposit anymore i have currency so it moves money out of the banking system. Yeah, yeah, that that's what I was assuming. I just wanted to get your professional opinion on that. The thing that blows me away looking at this is in, call it 1953 or so. Yeah. We had 23 billion roughly in, in total bank reserves. And I don't know if they calculated it the same back then, but I know now vault cash is included in the bank reserve total. So in 1953, I would assume M2 money supply was, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing sub 1 trillion. It had to have been because I know in, in uh, 1980, it was 1.5 trillion. And then we fast forward from 1953 to 2007. And the bank reserves went from call it 20 billion to 40 billion. But yet M2 went from who knows, 500 billion to 21 trillion. <laughs> how, how is this possible, Joseph? Mm, sounds like massive loan creation. So the increase in M2 is backed by a loan asset. Right. But everyone's going to tell you that the, the Fed controls bank lending based on the amount of bank reserves that they have in the system, because this adds to balance sheet capacity with, let's say, a 10% reserve requirement. But if that was true, then how could M2 just go like this while <laughs> the, the bank reserves pretty much flatline? It just... What if um, what if the banks are buying more securities, buying treasuries or buying more, buying stuff like that? Um, also, I think it's helpful to think about this in another way. So the reserve back then, if you had biting reserve ratios, um, you had different types of liabilities, had different reserve requirements. So, for example, if you had a longer. So the whole point of having a reserve requirement is to make sure you have enough cash on hand to meet. Uh, let's say if your depositors come withdraw money. So some liabilities are more runnable, for example, maybe say an overnight loan, but you could also have deposits that are, let's say, three month CDs or one year CDs. And 
you know, those have very low reserve ratios because your money is locked up for a period of yeah. time. So the and, composition changes as well. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but like in the nineties, they started doing sweep accounts. Yeah. Right? Or, or, or they're like, Oh, well it's, it's a deposit, but uh, <laughs> not a deposit from 5 PM to 5 AM that it doesn't really count here. And just kind of, we'll sweep that into the rug. I remember reading a blog post from the federal reserve in 2002 saying that uh, reserve requirements were pretty much a moot issue. Like they didn't even matter anymore because the banks got around that through those sweep accounts to the point where, yes, they were backing up the deposits during the day, but it just, uh, in the spirit of the law, they were completely ignoring it. That is, there was so many holes and like the Euro dollar system is one reason yeah. why. So let's say you have deposits at New York. Okay, I withdraw them and deposit them in London. Well, London is outside of the U.S. and, you know, you don't have reserve ratios. And that <laughs> London branch sends money right back to New York. And then it's an interbank thing and it's fine as well. So, yeah, it was it was very porous, as you noted, George. And, you know, they just got around that. It, it wasn't really a big deal. Yeah, that's what I always kind of the conclusion that I, I usually come to is that uh, no matter how we how much we want to regulate the banking system, it just seems like they're always going to be one step ahead of the game. And if they want to create a loan, damn it, they're they're going to do it. <laughs> well, don't fight the ingenuity of lawyers. They they'll they'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. All right, Joseph. Well, thanks a lot, buddy. That was really really a fun conversation. And as always, I I learned just so much from talking to people like you and Lynn and and Jeff Snyder that I'm just eternally grateful. And I know that I'm speaking for my audience as well. So, Josh, did you put up Joseph's YouTube channel? Okay, right here. Oh, it's oh, at yeah. FedGuy? Uh, I, I, FedGuy12, that's the same as my YouTube handle. Is, Are is you sure, weird? Josh? Yeah, I copied and pasted the YouTube. Let me actually okay. Share. That'd be pretty cool if they did something like that. Um, but did you, you would have had to have. Yes, it works. Yeah, no, no, no. I, uh, I set it up that way. Oh, good. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, for, for the audience, I have this new online course called Markets 101 that um, helps you walk through markets from the perspective of, of a macro trader. So I'm building it out. Right now, I have three courses. It's going to be a set of 10 courses. So, um, if How do they find that, Joseph? It's on my website, uh, fedguy.com. There's a link to, uh, to new courses that I have. Okay. Yeah, I can't suggest people checking that out enough. And uh, Joseph, I guess the next time I'll see you, just to let the audience know, we'll be in Jekyll Island. Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. You know, Jekyll Island is a storied place. So really, really looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, buddy. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, George. Great to see you again.